BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. The California state prison system now counts 15 inmates who have died of coronavirus-related causes. That's as of Friday. Overall, more than 2,440 inmates in state prisons have tested positive for the virus. That's despite efforts to test prison staff and release inmates early. Those figures do not count local and federal prison populations in the state, which have also experienced coronavirus outbreaks. Meanwhile, some inmates have reported lack of access to safety equipment and health care, and we're going to discuss how coronavirus has spread in California prisons and how measures to prevent the illness are falling short. Joining us, Sam Levin, Los Angeles correspondent for The Guardian U.S., and welcome to the program. Good morning to you. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to have you. Also glad to have Eileen Gao, who's an investigative journalist who covers inequality, injustice, and unintended consequences. And we welcome you to the program as well this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Thank you both for being here. And uh, Sam Levin, let me begin, if I may, with you. This is, uh, I think it's safe to say, nothing short than catastrophic. You've got nursing homes and cruise ships, which are large numbers and small spaces cramped together, and they're like petri dishes, and so indeed are the prisons. I just want to get an overview for our listeners first, because you've been writing in good detail about this for The Guardian. Uh, We've got too many people without food, without adequate food, I should say, without medical care. And this is, um, I think, not overstating it to say it's it's a pretty catastrophic situation. The basic protocols are being, for the most part, ignored, aren't they? Yes, it's an incredibly severe crisis. Um, You know, in March, Governor Newsom released about 3,500 prisoners early because of coronavirus, but that was a tiny fraction of the state's massive prison system, which remains sort of one of the largest in the world and is still dangerously overcrowded. And so it's simply impossible to have physical distancing in these facilities. And if coronavirus enters one of these prisons, it can spread like wildfire which folks have been warning about since the start of this pandemic, and we've seen it come true. And so in the state prisons alone, you've had more than 3,000 cases and 15 deaths of folks inside. And that's not including, you know, 1,700 people who've been infected in the federal prisons in the state where 17 people have died. And so it's a severe and worsening crisis. and, And the people who are getting infected and who are trying to protect themselves say they don't have basic protections or ability to kind of take care of their health care. If you combine the state and L.A. County and federal, you got about 6,000 now who have been infected, spreading more rapidly in California prisons than it is in the state or, for that matter, in the country. And I think, Gal, this is um, many people who just want to be safe. I mean, sometimes the uh, ambivalent feelings of citizenry toward those who are behind bars uh, needs to be taken into account here, but there are many people who are 
simply concerned, especially loved ones, about safety. And safety here is a serious problem, as we've been saying, because guidelines aren't being followed. And uh, they're not necessarily prioritizing prevention in these uh, uh, for the incarcerated. Uh, so I want to get to sort of the main concern here about what's not being done. Um, Sam just mentioned social distancing, but protocols also ask for sanitizing. They ask for um, symptoms to be isolated. They ask for all kinds of things that simply, for the most part, have not been adhered to. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think actually the first issue is that there is not and there has not been enough testing. Um, on March 12th, CDCR actually canceled all family visits as a preventative measure with the idea that people that are coming from the outside are uh, potentially going to be vectors for the disease. Um, so in doing that, they were recognizing that this disease is coming from the outside. And with family visits canceled, that really means that now um, and since March 12th, it's being brought in by um, the staff. Um, and despite that, there has not been staff testing until the end of May. And so we were seeing essentially a month and a half where the prison system just had no idea how many guards were bringing it in. Um, and you can't, you can't really treat a crisis like this without having that baseline information. So we're talking about uh, guards and, and those who work for the prison system going outside and bringing actually the virus into uh, and exposing prisoners to the virus from their movement outside. Uh, but there's always been long-time sanitary, unsanitary conditions within the prison. There's always been difficulty uh, along those lines and problems with healthcare. And so if anything, those have increased exponentially, haven't they? They have, yes. Um, there's, there's huge issues in the prisons with uh, overcrowding, as, as Sam was talking about, um, a lack of uh, just equipment to be able to clean everything. Um, and as, as I think Sam has written about and I found in my reporting as well, um, inmates that have tried to take measures into their own hands have actually in some cases been punished. Um, I have a case uh, where on May 1st, um, inmates in at uh, the California Institution for Men, where until a couple of days ago, that was the only prison that had deaths occur. Um, and on May 1st, a group of inmates were told that they were going to have coronavirus positive inmates just tested positive, moved into their dormitory, and when they tried to raise questions, uh, they were actually um, given Form 115s, which is a type of punishment that, uh, if it's carried through, it adds time to someone's sentence. And so I think that's just part of the, the many examples of how the, the California state prison system is really still adhering to you know, rules and regulations that, that do not take into account this massive pandemic. Again, Eileen Gao is an investigative journalist. This massive pandemic inside the prisons really uh, presents problems with not only testing, as Eileen mentioned, but there's been a lot of opaque reporting and a lack of data in general. And Sam, let me go back to you, Sam Levin. Huge gaps also between what's being said from the inside and what we're hearing from officials. I mean, this last Sunday in the San Francisco Chronicle, there was a whole uh, diary of a woman behind bars, uh, and she was writing things that were almost completely contradictory, but nevertheless could have been supported uh, by other prisoners and by those working behind. So we have this gap, uh, and we also have, uh, and I want to touch on this with you, um, concern that you've written about, about 
uh, older people and people who have, there's an older woman that you write about, a 60-year-old, eight-year-old woman, Patricia Wright, who has terminal liver cancer. Uh, all she wants to do is see her kids and her grandkids. She's been behind bars for decades. And I just want to give a little picture of this for our listeners. Um, she, she hired somebody to kill her husband years ago, and he was abusing her. She went to prison. Now she's legally blind, and she has liver cancer. These kind of people, for the most part, uh, although the governor has released people who are low risk, are pretty much being ignored. And, and there are people like her, a lot of people like her. Correct. I mean, I think Patricia Wright has always maintained her innocence in her case. Um, but regardless, there are, you know, massive amounts of elderly and frail women in the California Institution for Women, which um, has one of the largest coronavirus outbreaks, who are at very high risk of potentially dying from this virus if they're infected. Um, so in addition to Patricia, there's a, another woman who I wrote about in my story who also currently has cancer and is in the middle of chemotherapy. And so these women, if, if they get coronavirus, there's a very good chance they could pass away. Um, they've been in prison for a very, very long time. And so there's a big push right now to get Governor Newsom um, to grant clemency to these women, which would allow them to come home. And I think if we look at the broader kind of prison system, it's very hard to read about their cases and learn about their cases and, and believe that they could possibly be any risk to society um, if they were to be released. And so I think we do have to look big picture at you know, what the governor could do in this situation to help folks inside and, and you know, whether there is a way forward here that does involve releasing massive amounts of people um, because that could, you know, play a big part in affecting kind of how the virus spreads and it could also, you know, help uh, save a lot of lives. Well, Sam, the figures I say uh, tell us we're about 124% overcrowded from what we're supposed Correct. to be. And as far as some of these autoimmune uh, cases of older women and so forth, uh, State Treasurer Fiona Ma has actually stepped up on this, hasn't she? Correct. Yeah. And so she's done some work on this in her, her previous job as an elected official. And, and so she actually has a list of, you know, 25 elderly and vulnerable women who have active commutation requests that the governor could immediately approve today to have them come home. And so far, he's refused to release any of them. And so he's been very resistant um, to release anyone serving long sentences. Um, and I think a lot of folks throughout the state are sort of troubled by that and trying to understand kind of what his thinking is on this. Um, but the reality is, is he could release mass amounts of people and, and that could save a lot of their lives. And also, you know, for people who do remain behind, make it easier for them to do distancing and, and all of that. Um, and, and I think we've seen the conditions inside are just truly a, a human rights and you know, public health catastrophe at this point. We should mention, though, that a couple of months ago, uh, Governor Newsom did release 3,500 prisoners. Uh, but we're talking about the state of things now, and we're talking about the spread of coronavirus in California prisons with Sam Levin, Los Angeles correspondent for Guardian U.S., and Eileen Gao, who is an investigative journalist who covers inequality and justice and unintended consequences. And I'd like to hear your thoughts and any questions you might have about the coronavirus and its spread in prisons. Do you have an experience with incarcerated person or people? And do you have health concerns? Uh, let me give the number and invite you to call us. Our toll-free number is 866-733-6786. We welcome your call, so you're invited, please, to join us now. 
at our toll-free number. Again, it's 866-733-6786, or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or email any questions or concerns you might have to forum at kqed.org. And Aline Guell, if I could go back to you just for a moment here, uh, we're talking about, as I said, overall 6,000 infections if you include federal, state, and L.A. County, uh, but most of these are centered in Southern California in these remote communities outside of Los Angeles, which have, again, limited healthcare capabilities, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there is a cluster at, um, as we've discussed, the California Institution for Men and the California Institution for Women, which are both located in Chino, California, just 30 miles east of us here in Los Angeles. And the true scope of this crisis uh, can't be underestimated or, or understated, I think uh, it's safe to say, because even though a lot of it's centered, as I said, in Southern California, we have now here in California, I, I use the word catastrophe because the numbers, I get back to your point about testing, where are we now on testing? That's a great question. Um, and I think one of the challenges with all of the data is that there's not really clear definitions of what we're talking about. Um, I mean, CDCR has a really great dashboard that they have on the website now that tells us how many people have been testing. Um, but there's there's basic definitions when we're talking. So they show on their dashboard, you know, that there have been uh, 3,000, nearly 3,400 people tested at the California Institution for Men, which until recently uh, had the greatest count. But and they talk about active cases, um, resolved cases, you know, but they don't actually define what we're what we mean by that. So the assumption is that if someone has been clear of symptoms and clear of fever for 14 days, uh, that they are resolved, um, but there's not retesting, which is really what would tell us uh, whether or not they are recovered or not. Um, there have been studies that suggest that 14 days is actually not um, the the length of time that uh, that people will have this. There have been a lot. There's been a lot of evidence that these basic definitions, which again are not even defined on on their website, are are not enough to give us a sense of of the scope of COVID-19. Well, we're reading stories again that are really very disturbing, and I want to get to this with you to some extent, Sam Levin, about inmates who were reprimanded for using masks or trying to use masks or trying to use bleach to help clean things and so forth. Uh, but I wanted to get to uh, what's being done. Uh, Sam, can you give us a outline, for example, of the ACLU? Uh, they put some complaints in and they filed a suit. What, what's the status of that? Yeah, there's ongoing efforts to try to get folks out. And I think a lot of that is focused on the federal prisons as well in California, where we've seen these massive outbreaks. Um, and so there, there hasn't been a ton of kind of response from these prisons in terms of doing anything different. I think the prisons themselves and CDCR have argued that, you know, they are doing distancing as much as they can and that they are giving adequate supplies but as Eileen is saying, you know, we've continued to see evidence and testimony from lots of folks inside and their family members that that's simply not happening. And I think, you know, one thing that's important to remember is that, you know, we've seen that the statements of officials contradicted by the folks inside. And so, for example, at Terminal Island, which is the federal prison, you know, there was a case where an individual um, was listed as recovered from coronavirus, which is also how CDCR is classifying people. And then shortly after that, that inmate passed away from coronavirus. Um, and so it's very hard to trust and kind of understand the data we're getting from officials. And I think the scope and scale of the crisis 
still remains to be seen. Well, I think it's also safe to say that uh, we have this problem with overcrowding, but we also have uh, had a serious problem with uh, lack of preparation. Let me get a response uh, from you, Eileen Guao, to a comment from a listener named Carol who writes, the bottom line is that none of those prisoners was given a death sentence for their crimes, yet keeping them in overcrowded and unsanitary conditions without the proper precautions in place is quite potentially mating out a death sentence. We have to stop making decisions based on fear and start making decisions based on compassion, science, and logic. I am so sad for these people. And that sadness is, uh, I think, appropriate and because she's right. There's, there's almost a death sentence here. Talk about the, the 15 deaths that have been recorded, if you could, Eileen. Yeah, um, and, and Carol, um, I, I resonate deeply with what, what you said, and, and a lot of the prisoners that I spoke to brought up this very point. Um, one man, Vince Hudson, he wrote to me a really, um, really touching letter where he said, it isn't right at all that they don't care about our well-being. They should know my life matters too, and, and that's just really stuck with me. Um, the truth is, we don't actually know that much about the people that have passed. Um, the few reports that have come out are not from CDCR. I think that is out of uh, concern and deference to the families and their privacy. Um, but there have been reports out in the LA Times and other newspapers that have talked about uh, about some of these individuals. And, and um, I think one of the things that's concerning, and, and Sam just spoke to this, is that there are people that are being released and dying after their release, which are not being fully accounted for. So again, it's just, we're still, we're very much in the middle of this. And I think we're not going to know how many people are truly affected by this um, for quite some time. And, and that's horrifying. Well, we're fortunate to have people like you and Sam uh, covering a lot of this and bringing it out in the open. Let me bring a caller on here. Fabiola joins us. Fabiola, you're on the air. Good morning. I have a question. Is there any plan right now to release any prisoners? I didn't hear this. And if there is a plan, do we know who will be allowed out? Thank you. I'll take my question off the air. My answer right. off the air. Thank you for the question. Sam Levin, no plan right now, is there that we know? There's not. Only in early March, Governor Newsom released a very small group of, of people who were basically near the end of their sentence and classified as crimes that were considered nonviolent. But there's no ongoing plan to release folks. I think the governor's office was very tight-lipped about my questions regarding the 25 women who could immediately be released today as just a snapshot. You know, they basically say, we're continuing to take these cases seriously and respond to, you know, commutations as we always do when, you know, many others feel that the situation demands much more serious urgency than that. Um, and so there's no plan to release folks. And for the folks who did get out early, there also wasn't much of a plan in place to, to help them on the other side. And so we, we've also seen the fact that, you know, they're entering this world after coronavirus and um, are, don't have the basic kind of supports that folks need when they are, are released. And Sam Levin, again, is Los Angeles correspondent for Guardian U.S. Sam, let me get your response to a comment from a listener named Michael who writes, more than a month ago, I sent Governor Newsom a suggestion. Release those prisoners who have already received a favorable determination from the Board of Parole Hearings. With the virus surging through the prison system, these are far from ordinary times. The governor's office did not reply to this proposal, which leaves me to wonder how a governor so courageous in some areas, major equality, for example, can be so 
cowardly in others. It may sound a bit harsh, but you want to perhaps speculate on why the governor, after the early release of uh, a couple thousand prisoners back in March, uh, has been quiet on this? It's a great question, and it's one that I have as well. Um, I think it's very hard to speculate on what's going through his mind or what's happening at the governor's office. Um, I think that in general, we've seen across the country, and this would apply to you know Governor Cuomo in New York as well. There's always a resistance to release folks from prison and and to make you know moves on prisons that are different from what they've done in the past whether that's because of political calculations or if these folks want to run for president someday and don't want to be branded as seen as releasing quote unquote violent criminals, you know, that's possibly it. But it's very hard to understand this moment, you know, why he would not choose to release some of these folks who, you know, as this caller just said, were already, you know, deemed to be safe to, to be released. Or if we're talking about elderly women who are currently, you know, dying from cancer, um, or so many cases um, where, you know, you'd imagine if, if you released them, there wouldn't even be much pushback. Um, and so I've personally sort of struggled to understand what's happening at that office and certainly haven't gotten any information and, you know, have requested interviews and, and all of that. So I don't know if we'll see some movement on the future, but I'm definitely watching very closely and continuing to ask them about it. We got a lot of people in prison who have autoimmune diseases and who are particularly susceptible and vulnerable. And let me go back to Eileen, Eileen Guo uh, with a question about PPE supplies. And I mean, uh, there's a scarcity from what I'm reading, uh, not only of PPE supplies in the prisons, but even such things as soap and sanitizers. Is that right, Eileen? Yeah, I, I do think that things have started to improve um, at CIM from what I'm hearing. Uh, according to the official spokesperson, each uh, inmate now has five five uh, cloth masks that they can use and um, rewash. Uh, but it, it's I, I think part of the issue is also that, um, and part of the issue that people are really frustrated by, is that all of this is happening now after we already have 15 deaths in the system. And these are all issues that were brought up uh, earlier that we should have known, and, and not just in terms of COVID-19. I mean, prisons and, and jails are known for for being hotspots for infectious disease. And, and, you know, there are inmates that I've spoken to that I've lived through multiple, uh, multiple, like, outbreaks of, of many infections. Some of some of the men that I spoke to um, had valley fever, which they contracted in the prisons, and that's not infectious inmate to inmate, but it's it's a huge issue in Southern and Central California. Um, and, and one inmate asked of me, you know, do I just keep doing this until I die? Because the signs were already there that all of the conditions, overcrowding, not enough sanitation uh, and equipment, as you just mentioned, um, and, and just the lack of uh, attention to the fact that correctional health, prison health is also public health. Um, all of those things are things that we just don't seem to be paying enough attention to within the correctional system. And we should also mention the fact that some of the largest outbreaks have been in the federal prisons at Lompoc uh, and also Terminal Island. Uh, let me go to another caller here. Let's bring Mark on. Mark, you're on. Morning. Hi, good morning. Thank you. Um, I am very sympathetic to the inmates in the, in the prison system, and I think a lot of things should be done uh, to help these people. But uh, in these conversations about this topic, there's something I never hear mentioned, and, it can, and it, uh, it's that 
you're, everything you're saying suggests that these people are highly likely to be infected and infectious and releasing them into the community, uh, people who uh, are might likely have no place to go. Uh, what What's being done about that? I think that's an important question, Mark, and I thank you for it. Let me go to you on this, Sam Levin. Yeah, I think because we haven't had any releases related to coronavirus, those questions haven't been answered yet. However, I do think there are certainly ways that that question could be addressed, whether it involves testing or isolating folks on the outside. And I think certainly, you know, questions about how folks would be released and how the broader public safety would be, you know, affected. But forgive um, me, Sam, this may at least in part explain some of the governor's hesitancy. Uh, in fact, uh, I'm looking at a tweet from a listener named Michael who says, California had a preview of how disease can sweep through a prison several years ago with Valley Fever. Apparently they learned nothing. Wouldn't these sick elderly just be placed in nursing homes? Sounds like a frying pan fire situation to me and who would pay for their health care once released? So you have some big questions that would be facing the releases. Well, if I could jump in there, I think it's important to note, uh, since the, the listener mentioned valley fever, that valley fever is not infectious person to person. Um, so that's something no, that's to right. keep in yeah. mind. But but the other thing that, that is also important, and these are really important questions, is, um, you know, uh, one, one other thing we haven't talked about on the show yet is that um, CDCR did have a plan of moving 700 prisoners from um, the California Institution for Men to other prisons that do not have cases. And that unfortunately stopped when those other prisons did end up having cases. And some of those were were men that had not been tested previously and some were their own. Um, and, and so I bring that up because the plan for these men when they were going to be moved to these prisons was that they would be in quarantine for 14 days. And uh, one of the men that I wrote about, Daryl Harris, wrote me from that prison feeling a lot safer. Um, so there are plans in terms of quarantine, uh, but I think the main issue is the lack of testing. Um, these men, when they were moved, they were not tested right before moving. They were tested once, but of course you can get uh, coronavirus even if you don't get it the first time you're exposed. Um, and the other thing to keep in mind is that a lot of uh, the inmates that are petitioning to be released, they are petitioning to be released with the support of families that are in some cases writing in to the governor, uh, in other cases making clear in court um, hearings that they are able to take care of their family members and they are able to keep them in quarantine and that is not being considered really as, as part of whether or not to release them. Well, I have another listener who wants to know again about non-release and that's Peggy. Peggy, join us, please. You're on the air wondering how much the prisons being for profit have to do with not uh, emptying more people into society and how much the for-profit has to do with all the uh, criminal, you know, the police problems that people are asking for for change. Sam Levin, we go to you on that. I think that's a massive problem we've seen in immigration detention. In California, these are state-run prisons we're talking about, and so they're, they're not for-profit facilities, which I think actually just speaks to the fact that this is sort of a state situation that's happening, and so the government has a responsibility to protect people's health who are in you know, the government's care. Um, I think we've seen with ICE detention, those are for-profit facilities where the conditions are truly horrific as well. Um, and there's uh, lots of problems related to their for-profit status that have exacerbated that crisis as it relates to coronavirus. Um, but these state prisons are not for-profit and 
there's still this massive uh, human rights catastrophe. Sam, forgive me, we've got seconds left here, but I want to get David in quickly. David, uh, we've got seconds left, but they're yours. Your wife is in prison? Women's facility, I just wanted to say that it, it, it's, it's, I talk to her every day on the phone, and the conditions in there are nothing like what they say they are. There's no PPE, there's no social distancing, and honestly, society, California needs to change its attitude towards prisoners from their prisoners so they don't matter to having compassion for them. That's all I wanted to say. Well, I'm glad you had an opportunity to say it, and I thank you for it, and I thank our guests. Uh, thanks to Sam Levin and Eileen Guao, and thank you, our listeners. We wouldn't be here without you, and we appreciate your listenership, and we have another hour of forum up ahead. We're going to meet the mayor of Stockton in the next mayor, in the next hour. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.